And last Sunday, if you were here, Mark spoke about passion, having passion for God. And I've got the title of Passion for Life. So, in the context of your life and mine, let's think about it. What is passion? Where does it come from? How do we find it and express it? What kills passion? Why is it that some people have a love and a zest and a passion for life, no matter what it throws at them, that's infectious, that energizes us all, whilst others seem always to see the negatives, no matter how brightly the sun is shining? Passion can be described as a strong, barely controllable emotion, an intense desire, or an unbridled enthusiasm for something in life. Passion can be directed towards another person. Passion can be directed towards a cause. Or passion can be directed into something that we just love doing and invest everything that we've got into it. Our passion can both energise us and those around us, or our passions can be damaging and destructive. According to Greg Levoy, a management consultant and behaviourist, and so he will know, passion is not necessarily about happiness. Passion can be cultivated. Passion lies in risk. Passion breeds passion. But where does passion come from? If we believe God has created us, you and me, in his image, and that we are, as the Bible says, fearfully and wonderfully made, then we must believe that passion is both a gift from God and part of God's own character. But where it all comes off the rails is when passions are corrupted and misdirected. I believe that in creation, God intended us to enjoy life, to live it to the full in the world he had created. Can you just imagine waking up every single morning in Eden, beholding the colour, the beauty of that creation in a a kind of a never-ending garden? A garden that was well watered by streams and rivers. A place where with every breath you drink in deeply the scent of flowers and blossom. And what fascination there must have been in watching every species of animal living there. Kind of a wall-to-wall David Attenborough. And it must have been God's intention that in walking in intimacy with him, men and women, would experience the passions, the emotions of love, of excitement, of joy, of just having the gift of life that he'd breathed into us and enjoying it to the full. But when that intimacy with God was broken, uglier passions began to take hold of the human heart and began to dominate human lives. In chapter 4 of Genesis, we read of the deep-seated jealousy that impassioned and impassioned anger that led Cain to kill his brother. And the rest, as they say, is history. 
We only have to look at a broken and battered world to see the awful effects of jealousy, of greed, of anger, of prejudice and hatred that result in damaged lives, fractured families, disaffected communities, war-torn nations and displaced people. But this is intended to be a sermon of hope and inspiration, not of gloom, doom and despair. And despair. So let's move on and discover more about God's heart for us, for you and for me, his people, and his intention that we live our lives to the full, albeit in a broken world. So what has this passage in John 10 got to do with passion? Well, I think everything. Everything because it highlights the contrast between having a way of doing religion that is steeped in rules and regulations, prohibitions and punishments, between that and having a life-giving, life-enriching, life-empowering faith that can only be born out of an intimate encounter and relationship with the God who loves us, you and me, passionately. And I know I keep saying it, But when we read the Bible, we have to look at the context to help us understand it. If we turned back into chapter 9, we would see that Jesus had restored the sight of a blind beggar on the Sabbath day. And as a result of that action, the Pharisees began to interrogate both the man and his parents. And they evicted him from the temple and they discredited Jesus, intending ultimately to kill him. So then Jesus started to talk about judgment, saying that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. And some of those Pharisees, when they heard him say this, asked, what? Are you saying we are blind too? And Jesus responded, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. And so as we move into the John 10 passage, it's a continuation of that rather tetchy conversation with those very same people who had witnessed and reacted to that event. And so we turn to the shepherd. Living off the land and keeping sheep were the only sources of income for many In New Testament times. So it's not really surprising that the Bible is full of images about sheep and about shepherds. And many, many sermons have been preached. Sermons in which the sheep fold or the sheep pen has been rightly interpreted as either the church or the kingdom of heaven, with Jesus being the way in, the only way in. But if we look carefully at verses 1 to 6, And the context immediately before, I think there's another layer of meaning. You see, the sheepfold was an enclosure. Often it was made out of rocks and it had just an opening for a doorway for the sheep to come in and out. And at night it was quite common for several flocks belonging to several shepherds to shelter there together in that one sheepfold. And during the night, one shepherd or gatekeeper would be positioned in the doorway, keeping the sheep safe inside. And in the morning, the genuine shepherds would come to the gate, and the gatekeeper would recognise them, and they would call out their own sheep by name. 
and the, she- and the sheep would recognise their own shepherd's voice. And the sheep would never follow a stranger, but only the voice they knew. So anyone who wanted to rob the sheepfold would have to climb in over the wall and steal the sheep away somehow. So in speaking about the thief and the robber, Jesus was actually confronting the leaders of the temple who had thrown the beggar out, the beggar whose sight had been restored, because they were not true shepherds. And so in this passage, Jesus is also speaking about Israel itself. He had come to lead the Jewish people out, out of a religious system that was rule-driven, narrow, restrictive, that kept people penned in, penned into a daily lived reality that was shaped and determined by the system's leaders. He had come to lead them out of that and into a place of liberty and freedom. A place where they could have life and have it to the full. And it speaks of other sheep that were of a different fold. It spoke of the Gentiles, the other nations, the you and the me, who Jesus would lead out into a place where we could experience life to the full. And when we read the book of Acts, we can see it was God's intention that the church should be that place where people could find newness and fullness of life. Acts 2 describes the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was, I like this bit, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Hmm. So what's happened to that passionate lifestyle of the early church? Well, a study of church history shows cycles of church growth and decline. Churches and whole denominations born out of the breathing of the Spirit of God, the fire of God, that gradually, over time, became formalized, rigid, dry, more about liturgy than liberty. And so time and time again through history, God has had to do a new thing with his church and with his people. Now, those of you who are under 25, if you turn around and look behind you, you will see rows of people who are getting, let's face it, older. Now, believe it or not, once upon a time, all those people were very young. Some of them grew up in church, just like you, some of you. Others met Jesus for the very first time in their teenage years or as young adults, like some of you. I met Jesus in a way that was pretty mind-blowing and life-transforming when I was just turning 18 and I was about to go, leave home and go to university. This was not the insipid, blue-eyed, pale-skinned, wafty-floaty Jesus that inhabited the picture books I'd had as a child. 
This was a radical, uncompromising Jesus, the Son of God, who loved his children passionately. So passionately that he wanted them to enjoy the life they were intended for. Not a life that had been spoilt by fear, by peer pressure, by bullying, by questions about sexuality, by abusive, toxic relationships. This was a Jesus who had the power to wipe the whole slate clean, to let you start over, to let you live in and bring you into a place of intimacy with God. But then, passionate as I was, and very naive, I took a look at the traditional church with its committees and its rules, and older people who seemed to go through the motions, some of them, with sermons that were, frankly, quite dull, and services that were much the same week after week. And I couldn't somehow join the dots between what I found in the church and the Jesus that I'd just met. Where was the passion to know God more, to hear his voice, to praise him and worship him, as the Bible says, in spirit and in truth. And so I, and many others, left the traditional churches and we joined a new expression of church, a movement called House Churches that was gathering momentum in the 70s and the 80s. And we met in homes. And if the gatherings got too big, we met in halls and schools. And when we were together, we were hungry to understand what the Bible said and how it applied to our lives. And we worshipped and we spoke in tongues and we prophesied and we had a sense that Jesus was there with us. And do you know, we never, ever had a worship band. How was that? We identified with the persecuted church. And we would often pray into the early hours of the morning for Christians who were in prison and for their families. Our passion for Jesus burned strongly. And that passion carried us through the ups and downs of life. Of exams and troubled relationships. Of choosing and finding and choosing our life partners and having children of making decisions that were going to determine our future. And guess what? Our parents worried about us. They thought we'd gone all extreme because they preferred their religion to be quiet and private and dignified and very well-mannered. Youth, for goodness sake, should be a time for passion, for energy, for a bit of reckless living. A time to live life to the full, to take a few risks before too many responsibilities take hold of you and begin to weigh you down and tie you down. If you don't take a few risks when you're young, you're never going to do it when you get older. You don't actually look back and regret the risks that you took because you're still here to tell the tale. You actually regret The times when you could have taken a risk and you played it safe. So if you're going through school, or you're going through A-levels, or you're going to university anytime soon, I'd say to you, take hold of all the opportunities that are there for you in both your hands. Study hard or work hard if you're going into work. And whatever is your thing, whether it's sport or drama or theatre or arts or music, enjoy it. Enjoy life to the full. But whatever time you spend in Christian company, 
Choose friends who will help you build your faith and a church where passion breeds passion. This is a time in your life when you can discover more of God and hear his call and begin to follow it. It could be a time when you prepare for a short-term mission trip or just simply get out to other parts of the world and see. See that other people live their lives differently. You know, for me, simply taking time out to travel by bus from London to Delhi changed my understanding about cultural diversity forever. Do it while you can. Shake off the accepted norms that you've grown up with. The hidden prejudices of class and culture and even your religious faith if it's just a habit or something you do because that's where your social group is at. If your form of religious faith is not life-giving and life-changing, then you call out to God and you get the real deal. Because it's only the real deal, believe me, that's going to sustain you and your faith and your trust in the living God through the ups and the downs of the life that's in front of you. So what happened to those house churches that some of us were part of? Well, in the cycle of church life, some have declined, but others have flourished and grown bigger, built buildings and grown effective missional communities and ministries that reach out locally to refugees and asylum seekers and globally across the world. Some of the people that we knew then have spent years serving overseas, or like us here in caring professions and ministries in the inner cities. And in time... Some of us have been drawn back by God into more mainstream denominations. But you know what? I really thank God for those years. Those years when the risks were taken and passion bred passion. Years when I was grounded in the great themes of the Bible and experienced firsthand the outpouring of the Spirit in the church. Because it was the tangible reality of God discovered in those years that had shaped my life and sustained me and carried me through many, many challenges. And perhaps the most important question for us in the rows behind, as we are growing older, are, first of all, have we experienced the fullness of life that Jesus speaks of. And if we have, do we still have the passion that we knew when we first believed? We said at the beginning, passion is not necessarily about happiness. But do we still cultivate a passion for living our Christian life to the full that's not been dampened by the years? Are we still willing to take risks when God offers us the opportunity to think and act outside the boxes of our lives? Do we have a passion for life with God, a life with God that inspires and breeds passion into others? Or have some of us, oops, gone the wrong way. Oops, sorry. Don't know what's happened there. Sorry. Can you move it on, um, Rob, to slide 16? Thank you. Thank you. 
Have some of us succumbed to the things that are the passion killers? Things like weariness. You know, the things that kill passion in relationships are very much the same things that kill passion with God. And, you know, wearying ourselves with endless activities that leave no space to walk in intimacy with God and be refreshed through his word and spirit, that's a real passion killer. And when we become weary, it's easy to experience disappointment and disillusionment, another passion killer. We readily then translate other Christians letting us down to God letting us down. How many have abandoned the Christian life because other Christians have hurt them? So how do we restore our passion and our life with God if that's happened? Well, let's remember the words of Joseph. Remember, his brothers sold him into slavery. And he said, you meant evil towards me, but God meant it for good. And the Apostle Paul says, in all things, God works out for good, works for good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. There should be no place in the church for this passion killer, being over-competitive, critical or confrontational. Yet too often, those attitudes and behaviours can lurk in the shadows of our minds and damage our relationships with God and others and kill our ability to live the Christian life together in all its fullness. Refusing to acknowledge our faults and failings hardens our hearts and can render us deaf to the whisper of the Holy Spirit. And failure to forgive others eats away at us, entrenching us in our own views and poisoning the streams of abundant life that God wants us to experience day by day. And then final, the often silent, unrecognised passion killer, just settling down. It's so very easy to begin to settle for what the Apostle Paul describes as having a form of godliness but denying its power. To keep on doing what we've become accustomed to. To tweak things round the edges and make little changes. But failing to recognise that actually it's time, it's time. And God wants to do a whole new thing that might just rock our world and release the fullness of life that will change the world for others. Let me read you an extract from what Chris Hassel wrote on his blog on Thursday, after he'd had a number of conversations with people he'd met on his walk. He says, I find it sad that so many people are spiritually hungry, but fail to find their spiritual hungers met in the church. To me, it makes it even more important that the church seeks to be spirit-filled and spirit-led. People are longing for spiritual encounters and only spiritual hungers satisfied in Jesus are healthy, authentic and life-giving. It's the Holy Spirit who brings us to life and through whom we can actually encounter the love of God. We all need this. Unless we can show people that the church can be spiritual and passionate, 
we should not be surprised that people go elsewhere to find their hungers met. So, 15 or 50, 18 or 80, we cannot expect our church, our youth groups, or our ministries to grow either in number or in the life of the Spirit solely as the result of events, of programs, of courses, of sermons, a friendly welcome, or a particular style of worship. Now, all those things may draw people in initially, but it's only in a church community where we resist the passion killers, where we take a few risks, and where we allow passion to breed passion in our lives, and live as he called us to, that others are going to taste and see what Jesus meant when he said, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. I don't know what that means for you, and I'm still working out what it means for me. (laughs) 